Welcome. It's good to gather here in the presence of God, and I want to take a moment in this evening service to, to welcome all you who are here in person and also those who are joining online. We gather here in God's presence as those who have been called by God to come and respond. And so it's good to be together and good to respond and remember that we're not alone, that God has called us, the one who's made us and redeemed us in Christ. And so we're going to start our worship in just a moment, but just a reminder that we have a kind of a shortened order of worship. And so a couple of things that we don't, we're not doing right now is we're not having a time of greeting. And so I encourage you, uh, if you're here in person, to maybe after the service have a moment to uh, talk with each other outside on the sidewalk. If you're worshiping online, to take a moment to, to pray for someone else or send them a text. Or if you're, greet, if you're worshiping with others, to, to, to pass the peace of Christ to them. Also, to give to the work of the church, uh, to give to God our, of our resources. There's a gray basket in the back. You can drop off a gift there, or you can give online uh, through the church's website. Well, God has called us. Let's take a moment of quiet to prepare ourselves to come and participate in the call to worship. Good afternoon. Call to worship is from Psalm 37. We're not singing out loud, uh, but you're asked to stand. We're going to have a responsive reading. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not over the one who prospers while carrying out evil devices. A person's steps are established by the Lord when they delight in his way. Though they fall, they shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds them. the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them because they take refuge in him.
seated. You may be seated. For our prayer of invocation today, we're going to try uh, something a little different where we have some times of quiet that you can uh, have your own time of prayer. And so we're going to start with a time of quiet in which I encourage you to take a moment to reflect on kind of where you are right now or what you're bringing with you into the service as God calls you. And then after that time of quiet, I'll lead us in prayer. And at the end of the prayer, again, we'll have time of quiet that you can bring your requests and your needs and your longing to God. So I invite you now, let's take a moment of quiet to bring yourself before, before God. Lord, we thank you that you gather us. And Lord, we come as those who witness and know difficulty, times of confusion and uncertainty, anger and loss. Lord, we feel unsettled and swept up in anxiety, dismayed by so many hard things and uncertainties today and in the days ahead. And so, Lord, we come to you and turn to you, O God. We ask for your attention and that your work of your spirit would be at present. Lord, we ask for your mercy, that you would see us, Lord, clinging to the promises of your word from Psalm 139, that there is nowhere we can go in which you do not see us, that darkness is as light to you, Lord, and that you know and are present in our sufferings in our hardship. Christ, be merciful to those who are facing hardship and loss. Be merciful to those who worry, to those who grieve, to those who are threatened or harmed. Jesus, by your spirit, tend to the afflicted and comfort the brokenhearted and bring hope into a hopelessness. Lord, we acknowledge our need before you, our weariness. And so, Lord, we pray that we would hear again the words of Christ, not just remembering your presence, but hearing the invitation, come to me, all who are labor and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Lord, help us to bring whatever is going on within us or around us, help us bring those things to you, that we may know the yoke of you, Christ that we may walk not by ourselves, but walk connected to you. And Lord, help us to remember that we are your people called by you. You created us and appointed us to live in this very place, in this very time. And so Lord, in the tasks and the calling that you set before us, please give us your spirit. We give you thanks that you do not leave us alone or on our own resources, but by your spirit, you're with us, and we pray that you would give us the power of the resurrection, that we may find hope in you and find courage in the midst of difficulty. I invite you now to take a moment to bring your own requests and to bring yourself to God.
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, having acknowledged God's presence and brought ourselves to God, it's right for us to confess our sins. So let's do this together, and then it'll be a time for you to personally and privately bring your confession to God. I invite you to join with me in this responsive prayer of confession. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silent, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. Take a moment now to bring your prayers of confession to God. Lord, we thank you for the gospel that says that your grace is sufficient, that while our sin is great, your grace is always greater. So we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand with me and hear these words of assurance. They're from 1 Corinthians 5, and this is the good news of the gospel. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading is from Proverbs 9, 1 through 6. Wisdom has built her house. She's hewn her seven pillars. She's slaughtered her beasts. She's mixed her wine. She's also set her table. She set out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread, drink of my wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live. Walk in the way of insight. And the New Testament lesson is from Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, 
But understand that the, what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's good to see you all. And for those of you who are joining us, it's so glad to have you uh, with us online. Um, this week, as I was preparing to preach, I was trying to remember the last time I preached, and it was on March 8th. I'm oh, sorry. You're right. I forgot about that. It was on March 8th, and I realized that March 8th was the last Sunday that we were at Waters together. So I don't know if this is a good sign that after I preach, we're all going to go back to normal, or we have more things ahead of us. Hopefully that's not the case. Um, but it is good to be with you all uh, today. So this evening, uh, we are going to return to our, our study in the Gospel of John. Uh, we were looking at uh, a discourse Jesus is teaching, and it's often called the Bread of Life Discourse. And often, Jesus' teachings follow a sign or a miracle. And that, that sign and miracle is pointing to a deeper reality that he is wanting to reveal about his purposes and what he's doing for us. And in addition to his Gospels, he also has these I am statements. I am the resurrection of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. And in our passage today, we encounter, I am the bread of life. And I don't know about you, but when the crowds heard Jesus speaking this way, it wasn't what they expected. It wasn't what they were longing for or looking for. And as we consider that today, we will dive into that a little bit more. So let us, let us uh, pick up in John 6. Uh, I'm actually going to read the first few verses, 41 through 43, and then jump down to 47. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread of the fa- that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will, will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he was taught, as he taught at Capernaum. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we ask that you would be with us here now, be with the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, last week, Pastor Brian preached on this first half of Jesus' teaching, this that on the bread of life. Just a day before Jesus gave this sermon, this teaching, Jesus took five loaves of bread and he broke them and gave thanks and and fed 5,000 people in a desolate place. And not only did he feed them, but he gave generously and abundantly where there were 12 baskets of leftovers. Now this same crowd, when they did not find Jesus the next day, they rushed across the sea to find him to maybe see if he had a little bit more bread, that if he could pass it out. Maybe they even see if he could be the one who could provide for their physical needs, just like he did a day before. Or if he is the king that they are longing for, the king who would rid them from those who oppress them and harm them. But we find Jesus actually doing something a little different in, the, in his teaching. He doesn't break more bread and and feed them. Rather, he actually challenges their motivations because he desires not to just maintain their existence, not just to meet their physical need, but that they would have a better bread, a bread that would not spoil like the manna did, a bread that when their fathers ate and they would die after eating it, it did not provide eternal life. This bread is given not just so we can survive the next day or the next month or year, but that we can actually live and flourish, not living in fear or having the weeds of our heart choke out our life. This is the bread that Jesus is offering here to them. Now you would think that sounds amazing, to never hunger again, to never thirst And especially in this context where working each day, you would work for your food. And even for those of us who maybe daily food is not necessarily an issue, we still encounter the same sort of longings and need that food and drink does not always satisfy. These longings lay heavy on our hearts and never quite seem to be met. So when Jesus says that there's a source that gives life and satisfies this emptiness and hunger, this thing that they're longing for, that they no longer have to just exist but can live and thrive, the response of the crowd is to ask for this bread. Please give us this bread. And then Jesus tells them this. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Whoever comes would not hunger, and whoever believes will not thirst. Jesus reveals that 
he is the one that God has sent to his people to give them life, to give them life, to meet them in their places of longing and their places of need. And yet, Jesus is met with grumbling, grumbling. The crowd grumbles about Jesus and about his words. They question his authority and his legitimacy. We're told that he teaches in a synagogue, so he's in a place of teaching and expounding the word, and and they're questioning him, and they're wondering, what are you talking about? And not only that, but Capernaum is his hometown. It's where his family now resides. So they know his father and his mother. They know his siblings. And they're wondering and questioning, who are you to say that you are the bread of life? I don't know about you, and I know many of you are parents in here. Um, sometimes when you encounter grumbling or complaining from your students, that's not, or your, not your students, your, your children, or in my case, sometimes you students, um, that's not always the most pleasant thing to encounter, grumbling. And maybe even it makes you grumble in your own heart. I remember there was one time where Emily and I were taking care of our two nieces and nephew, and Emily got very, very sick, and she was not feeling great at all. She really just had to lie down. So the kids were left with Uncle Eric. And we got by that evening. I was able to make dinner and get bedtime stories read and get the, get the kids in bed, and, but they were grumbling. They were, they were not happy because I wasn't doing it in order. I was putting the big kids bed to bed first before the baby, and uh, I didn't do a, bio, a story time correctly either. So it was all this grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. And I noticed in my own heart, I was grumbling. I was upset. This isn't the way things were supposed to be. Now I don't say that because my nieces and nephews are bad, they're, they're wonderful, they're, they're great. Um, but it was just not a good night and expectations were not being met. My expectations and, and their expectations. And oftentimes when expectations are not met, they reveal deep and troubling wounds that often bubble to the surface. And for the crowd, there was a wondering of how long, how many more Messiah figures will we see? When would we be restored to our land? Who's going to protect us? Who's going to provide for us? And what do you mean that you're the bread of life? This grumbling theme is all throughout Exodus, all throughout the wilderness account, where the people of God are being rescued from the land of Egypt, the land of oppression, the land of slavery. And in particular, John picks up this theme here, saying that the crowds grumbled. The crowds grumbled. God rescued his people, and they were free. And yet, once they made it to the desert, it quickly began to make a list of complaints. We don't have the same food that we used to have. It's a little hot out here. We were not safe. Moses, what are you doing? But in particular, why is God bringing us out here to die? In Egypt, their hearts grew attracted and attached to their food and their protection and their security and their provision. And now they grumble because it seems to be not there. 
Grumbling is actually more than just a complaint. Grumbling is what I like to say a rumbling or turmoil that's deep within inside of us. I love that word, grumble. There's something deep. Behind the grumbles are often deep wounds of mistrust, betrayal, feeling let down, fear that my needs are not going to be met. And this is what Jesus encounters here. And rather than just pushing it away or trying to explain what he's saying, he actually digs deeper. He actually digs deeper. He actually confronts their grumbling. And the way he does it is with his flesh. With his flesh. So that first part was about the grumbling, and now Jesus confronts these grumblings with his flesh. We have seen that often a response to Jesus' teaching and what God is doing through him is met with grumbling. An expectation and needs are not met, and so discontent starts to bubble. And now, if you were a teacher, and you had maybe some students who were confused by what you were saying, or were maybe a few of them in the back grumbling over what you were saying, or confused in what you're trying to teach, you may try to regroup. You may try to pull them back and give them another angle or give them another image uh, to smooth out the tension, to smooth out the confusion. And yet, Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus actually raises the temperature. He actually ignites it. He doubles down on what he's saying. He doesn't turn away from it, but he actually addresses it head on. Jesus reiterates twice, he is the bread of life. And not only that, but he digs a little deeper and he says that the bread that your fathers received in the wilderness, that bread, it was good. It was from heaven, but it didn't provide them life. It didn't give them life, ultimately. And then Jesus stirs the pot. And he says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I don't know about you, whether you're new to the Christian faith or whether you're not, that is still a striking statement. What is Jesus saying here? It might be tempted to think that ancient, the ancient world is very foreign and strange compared to our modern world. And at some level it is. But the first century audience, the, the folks that Jesus is teaching to, would have been just as shocked by these words as us, as 21st century Americans. Jesus' language and teaching here is provocative. In the Old Testament, the people were prohibited from eating animals with blood, let alone drinking blood. So the response is an utter shock, confusion. What is Jesus doing? Is he out of his mind in what he is saying? Yet Jesus identifies himself as the true bread. This might scare us off. And this actually scared his own disciples off. And they grumbled, we're told. So what does Jesus mean when he says, to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and you will have life? Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled over the years in the church, trying to understand and 
and dig deep and really meditate upon what Jesus is doing here. And we don't necessarily have the time to parse out every single thing that the church has written or, or done about this. However, I do want to point us to a, kind of a little bit of an obscure passage to kind of maybe give us a little bit of guidance of what Jesus is doing here. In 2 Samuel 23, King David is off on campaign. King David, the leader of God's people. And they confront a garrison at Bethlehem. Bethlehem, David's hometown. And as David realizes that his hometown is basically under occupation by a foreign enemy, David reminisces on this well that he remembered drawing water from. There's this well, it's, and he's remembering all about it, and maybe even grieving what's going on in front of him. So in an offhanded comment, he wishes to have a cup of water from that well. And David has faithful soldiers, faithful officers who actually go into the camp and get some water and bring it to David. And David does something that may kind of surprise us or be like, man, that was really selfish. He pours out the water. Did they just go there to get him water? They actually put their life on the line to bring him water? And David says this, Shall I drink the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? David is saying that by drinking this water, I am benefiting from these men putting their life on the line. I am benefiting from them risking their lives so that I may profit at their expense. You see, the king of God's people was not to rule in order to benefit and profit from his people. He was to rule and lead to benefit for his people. For his people. And that is what Jesus is getting at here. That by eating his flesh and drinking his blood, Jesus is the true king. Jesus is far better than even David in this moment because Jesus would give his very own flesh and blood. He would risk his own life for ours. Jesus is saying that he will risk his life so that the crowd will benefit, that you and I will benefit from his death. No, Jesus does not mean that in order to have life, we must eat a literal piece of his flesh and drink a literal cup of his blood. But we are to be consumed and to take into our bodies and souls this reality of his flesh and blood, that it is his flesh and his blood that brings us life, that brings us life. This life he offers meets us in our grumblings. It meets us in those deep and unspoken places that are stirring in our hearts, that often get prodded and poked when our expectations are not met. And what I think we find at the heart of our grumblings is that we're actually feasting and drinking on flesh and blood that doesn't satisfy. It doesn't meet our needs. When we encounter our wounds and the things that bind our hearts and take them captive, we often rush to feed and find relief from others, from others. We can often be like a leech sucking the life 
out of someone for our own benefit and for our own profit, even at their detriment. I find this experience in marriage often challenging because in marriage you're supposed to give yourself to the other. And yet oftentimes where there's conflict, and I know for myself when I find myself struggling, it's because I don't want to give for my wife. I want to actually get something from her rather than give back. And I think that this plays out in our relationships with our children, in our relationships with our friends. This grumbling, this deep need, we try to find it in those around us, and yet it ultimately can consume those around us. But I also think this plays out in another way, in our communities, where others benefit and profit from the suffering and harm of others. We come, consume, trying to find our comfort, trying to hold on to power because it sounds unbearable to let it go. We would be exposed and vulnerable because without it, we would be lost and not know how to satisfy these cravings and these needs that we have. And yet Jesus invites us to actually respond differently, to respond like him, like the king who would give himself for his people. So Jesus is wanting us to change our taste. I, I know when I was growing up, vegetables, and in particular lima beans, was not my favorite. I hated them. And my mother would often try to, I, I really don't know, lima beans, I don't even know if they have nutritional value. I, I don't know. But it was often something that she wanted to feed us. And it's funny because as I grew older, I actually like lima beans. Um, it's something that I have developed and enjoy and, um, and, and find delight in. So just as our tastes and our appetites may change, we too also need our tastes and our appetites to change within our souls and our hearts. And this is where Jesus invites us to taste and see something more satisfying, something that is truly satisfying. It's himself. It's himself. God did the same thing for the people of Israel when they brought them out of the desert. The reason why he brought them out there was to actually draw them closer to himself, to rid them from the idols that had taken hold of their hearts. Jesus invites us into this same sort of reality. This salvation, this freeing, is not from not just being freed from something, but freed into something, into knowing God and into abiding in Him. As we begin to stop seeking out our own benefits over those of others and the needs of others, and we stop to feed on those around us, trying to find ultimate satisfaction, we come to find that actually feasting in Jesus is a delight it's a delight, but it's also a danger. What do I mean by that? The delight is found in abiding in him and as he abides in us. When I think of delight and joy, I, I imagine Peter when he found himself in the boat and he knew his, and he recognized that his Lord was on the seashore, his risen Lord, alive again. And he's calling out to him. 
Jesus, or Peter, grabs his cloak and he dives into the water and swims to the shore because he's delighted to see his Lord. And not only that, but they eat together and they feast together. There's a desire to be with his king, a desire to be with his Lord. So there's a delight, but then I would actually say there's also a danger. A danger that as we draw closer to Christ, we're left exposed. We're left vulnerable. Our grumblings are open to us and to the world and to Jesus. There's nowhere to hide. He sees our warts and our wounds. But it is in this encounter that we begin to find him meeting us. And as he does that, we actually begin to be a different people. We actually begin to be a people as we feed upon him, we no longer are seeking to feed upon others for our own benefit and need. But rather, we actually give ourselves to others. And the reason why we can do that is because our source of life is abundant and infinite and it's grounded in Jesus and his flesh and blood. So by way of conclusion, I wanted us to just think real briefly, just being mindful of the reality that we live in now. That this passage that Jesus is inviting us into is a feasting on him and delighting in him. And yet I recognize too that this may not be a delightful time, that this may not be a time of feasting. We find ourselves overwhelmed by oftentimes the things that we see on the news. And even a reminder that five months ago, our lives were different than they are now. And I wonder, does it draw us closer to each other or does it draw us closer or away from each other? And I think that Jesus is asking us to feed on his flesh and feed on his blood and drink his blood is actually encouraging us to find value in one another. To find value in one another. The violence that we see and the injustice that we see, it's heartbreaking. It's even difficult to put words to it. And yet, in order to move into it, we have to have a source that is lasting. We do not, we do not have to fear anymore that even if things get worse, that we'll be left alone because Jesus abides with us. So as we encounter these times together, as we encounter this as a community, Jesus invites us to feed upon him, to find our life in him, that we may be those who can give our lives and give our time for others. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
as our service draws to a close and we prepare to go out as God's as Christ's followers, I invite you to stand that we can join together in this closing prayer, responsive prayer. You'll see it in your, on your order of worship. Almighty God, you have given your only son to be for us a sacrifice for sin and also an example of godly life. Give us grace to receive thankfully the fruits of his redeeming work and to follow daily in the example of his holy life through Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. as a reminder for those of you who are here. Um, we would love to have you stick around and, and chit and talk and chit chat and talk, and, uh, but we'll, we'll do it outside uh, on, the, on the sidewalk. So now receive this benediction from the Lord. May the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all forevermore. Amen. Mm -hmm.